Welcome to the Stories She Sings, where we bring messages of biblical women to life through inspired songs. We hope this podcast will be a place of rest, refuge, and refreshing in the presence of God. This is Karen Grant with Joy Vibrations. Today, we're so happy to have a guest who is Dr. John Skidmore. He's a clinical psychologist and it has his own psycholog- psycological practice in here in Orem, Utah, as well as his own classwork that he's teaching at. He's an instructor at BYU teaching the psychology of music performance. And I am so excited to be interviewing John today, Dr. Skidmore, I should say. He specializes in anxiety disorders, depression, and family problems. But the thing that I am especially interested in is how Dr. Skidmore is combining music with healing, the healing arts, and his interest in body work and his background in that. So we welcome you to the show, Dr. Skidmore. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to uh, share some ideas that uh, for you and for your listeners. Well, I'm excited to hear them for myself and for my clients as well. Um, As some of you may know, I'm a a massage therapist specializing in vibrational attunement massage therapy with an emphasis in music as therapy and aromatherapy. And so this was a fun combination when I met Dr. Skidmore because I found a clinical psychologist who is open and very loves the idea of, of combining healing the body, healing the mind, healing the heart. As a matter of fact, we're going to be doing a workshop together, September 21st and 22nd, a two-day workshop that will be six hours per day, and I'll let Dr. Skidmore announce that and tell us a little bit about what he'd like to see happen there. As you look at the idea of um, healing the heart through mind and body work, it's such an important thing to recognize that the different things we've experienced throughout our lives can either become roadblocks, which they often are, or they become stepping stones. And the different hurts that we've picked up throughout our whole lives definitely become roadblocks. They become areas we protect, they become areas that we um, avoid, and they become areas that simply limit us. And you believe that it affects more than the mind. You're a clinical psychologist, you deal with the mind all day long. Well, I I deal with the mind and it's been really amazing to see not only in terms of the impact of what's going on in somebody's mind, but the mind has a way of showing up in somebody's body. Um, there have been explain that to our listeners, because a lot of people don't relate that the, that the inner workings of the mind can cause paralysis when we're emotionally depressed, why people go into fetal position when they're, when they're aching and hearts are broken. Well, everything we experience, we experience on a sensory level, whatever can give us sensory input, physically, through touch, through vibration, through temperature, smell, sound. All of these are a part of what's going on. And so many people have experienced different kinds of traumas or um, breakdowns or issues that have impacted them both physically and mentally. One of the biggest challenges I find with people is they'll talk about hurting, but they almost wish it was a physical kind of pain because that's so tangible. Um, we know what to do for a broken arm. 
And nothing hurts more than a broken heart. And nothing hurts more than a broken heart. And how to address the pain of that and the emotion and and the protective strategies, the defensive strategies. And, and how to even recognize them in yourself and how to, how to release those and pick up more healthy ways of handling situations differently in the future instead of getting into the same old, same old routines and patterns. You know, it, it's interesting to recognize that our lives are very much built around the removal of physical waste. I don't know anybody who takes their kitchen trash and throws it into their basement. Right. I mean, we have weekly trash collections and garbage disposals and sewage systems and all these things that are a part of dealing with the physical waste of living. Um, and we also have a tremendous amount of emotional waste in living as well, but we're very poorly equipped to deal with that. And you used a comment this morning in, in an earlier conversation we had about emotional elimination, and I thought that was great. A lot of people go into denial, suppression, just lodging those emotions deeper and deeper into the cells called depressed emotion, and then and then wonder why they're living in this low-grade melancholy and just filtering life through a lens of, of unhappiness. And, and you look at that and you say, okay, there's a lot of emotional waste that we pick up. I mean, I don't know anybody's life who's turned out exactly as they'd planned it to turn out. And the different levels of loss and grief, as well as disappointment, frustration, uh, different traumas, disturbances, catastrophes that occur, uh, as they occur, they create an emotional waste. And also, I completely agree with you, um, the, the secondhand smoke thing. You know, we, we inhale someone else's cigarette smoke and we protect ourselves against that. We don't want to breathe that in. But we can be indirectly very, very affected by uh, the negative conversation between our parents as when we were little children. Oh, or, absolutely. Or uh, office energy when, when the boss and the, you know, his his uh, manager aren't getting along and yet we take that stress home with us we lo load it into ourselves and and then we walk around stressed i think it's so important that we need to recognize to manage our emotional waste that way had a wonderful conversation with a friend of mine one time and it started out with a very simple very common question but his response is what i'll never forget i simply asked him it was like barry how are you doing and his response was <clears throat> not so good i've lost my serenity mm. And that's a concept we don't spend much time talking about. And we're I so quick that. to lose that sense of peace and serenity about ourselves over so many things. And as you said, when we're carrying that from one environment to the next environment, and it continues to compound, whether that's work or home, neighborhood, school, church, wherever that's coming from, it really does create a very toxic and very... A uh, very difficult thing to manage. It really does. And I am so happy to hear you talk and hear you sharing these things. I want to ask you, you came out of graduate school and in Chicago, right? I went to the Chicago School of Professional Psychology for my doctoral degree. And um, there was the paradox of we're talking about psychological health and the development of psychological health. And the whole structure of the program was probably one of the most unhealthy things I've ever been a part of in my <laughs> life. Um, physically, my body was just really stressed, um, very worn out, and uh, uh, went to a doctor for some neck pain, and he took some x-rays and said, here's some Tylenol, you'll be fine, and mm. that wasn't doing it. And at that point, I met some friends who were involved in body work and began to work with therapeutic massage, some acupuncture, um, and since then, I've... Uh, 
had a regular routine of uh, massage therapy and things like that. That is awesome. So you shared with me that you've been receiving body work for about 17 years. Yeah, I have. At one point, it was the best appointment of the week. A massage therapist I was working with uh, gave a, a coupon, you know, 10 massages for the price, or it was about a 25% discount if you bought like 10 massages at mm-hmm. once. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be going about once a month. And so when uh, um, I finished that first massage, but I'd already paid for 10, it was like, so what are you doing next week at this same time? And I just kept that going for about a year. And, and that's really fun because <laughs> the mind says, I've already paid for it. And oh, the, yeah. The other nine feel free. Oh, don't it, felt, they? it was great. You, know? <laughs> you don't have to get out your checkbook every single time. You yeah. Can, totally takes the stress away and and increases the relaxation. I love what you have shared with us about the individual who said, I've lost my serenity. I think that um, that is so important that we we find ways to increase our serenity. We live in a very fast-paced world. We are more aware than ever through the, via the internet and, and uh, television and radio of the crises that are going on in the world all around us. Um, we know we're privy to the information of other people's sorrows and pains, and we're accumulating the waste of of other people's sorrows in our own bodies, in our own minds, in our own spirits. And so I'm really excited about this workshop that we're going to do together because I feel like um, I just want to send it out there that we're going to attract those people who who realize the importance of healing the mind, healing negative thought patterns, mm-hmm. and and understanding that negative thought patterns leads to an acidic state in the body. That we've all felt afraid, had our stomach uh, get nauseated, had that fight or flight, you know, reflex that we just want to run. Um, but that creates a uh, an adrenaline mm-hmm. that then it takes a couple of hours sometimes to calm down from that. It's interesting the current research really supports that this idea of the adrenaline it's really a survival system in the body but it's actually toxic to the body on an ongoing basis. The- so is adrenaline uh, when you when somebody has an argument with someone and and one person gets over it faster. Can it not only be the way a person thinks, but maybe that one person's body is feeling more adrenaline and that it takes them a little bit longer to get their body in a more relaxed state and to calm down? And Have you ever things. studied that? I can't say I've studied that specifically, but a couple thoughts about that. One is that each person is going to be reacting to uh, whatever the stressor is in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people might have, the, I'll say, the stress circuits of a country road. Mm-hmm. And so if they get stressed out, they process things on this little two-lane highway where somebody else's experiences, and it's usually early childhood kind of experiences, uh, they've developed an eight-lane superhighway. And they can process it faster, quicker, absolutely at 95 miles an hour, get to their destination. And like anything else, the more we practice it, the more we experience it, the better at it we get. Mm-hmm. Now, we wouldn't want to necessarily think that we're getting better at stressing out, but, but that's exactly what we're doing. at resolving issues. Well, that's the hope. The reality mm-hmm. is for most people, they actually end up, are, they're better at getting stressed out, but it's the resolving issues. It's learning how not to stress out. It's learning right. how to respond differently. It's learning how to... Do you teach that in your, in your couples class? Absolutely. Oh, so you're going to teach us conflict resolution styles. Well, you know, the conflict resolution style that I like to work with is that there's a space in which each individual can bring the best of who they are to this relationship. Mm -hmm. And I use the very simple term of the zone. Mm -hmm. And this is a place where we really do bring the best of who we are and we stay problem focused and we're working on solutions. 
And it's interesting to recognize that when we're in this space, we're actually using the big frontal cortex, the big part of the brain above the forehead that's right in there. Um, whereas when we go out of the zone, we're using the amygdala, the fight-or-flight mechanism mm -hmm. of the brain, and that's all about things in our past. It doesn't create anything. It's, it's programmed reactions. Wow. And so we're either going to be in the zone or we're going to be in a space of fight-or-flight. Okay. And um, So you're teaching people how to stay in the zone, stay calm, keep forefront in the... Keep in a problem-solving state of mind. Okay. Because that's where relationships are built. And I think so often we forget that the relationship is important. And they're destroyed in the... Um, yes. They're destroyed in the... In yeah. the um, what is it, the reptilian brain? The reptilian brain, the amygdala. is about the size of a fingernail. Wow. And... Uh, People really need to learn what's under the hood, don't they? They do. And it's like, this is going to be fun. The mind mechanic here. We've yeah. got the mind mechanic. I'm excited. New title, new title. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, I, I would love to talk to you about, um, I, I really related with you when we were talking a little bit earlier before the show about how can a person only just deal with touch deprivation or sexual abuse or physical abuse issues without involving the body and how wonderful it is to be able to have massage therapists that you're able to refer your clients to so that they can be working it out of the body doing the big deep breathing and as well as coming in you and having you train train them and teach them how to do new conflict resolution and how to understand generationally maybe what's gone on in their past would you talk to me a little bit about um, understanding family patterns how that helps with your clientele each of us have a context or a story a framework that we view the world from and we view this world through this framework well where do we get it we got it from our family but where did our parents get that um, one of my favorite examples is a story of Thich Nhat Hanh he's a Buddhist monk and uh, he was asked how he how this person that was seeking his counsel should deal with the fact that his parents were abusive to him and what he should do about that and how should he look at his parents. And I really appreciated his response when he told him that his parents had unlucky parents. Hmm. And he thought about this for a minute. What do you mean my parents' parents were unlucky? He says, well, they weren't taught how to nurture. They weren't taught how to love. They weren't taught how to uh, relate in meaningful and helpful ways. And they were taught how to do destructive, mean, abusive, hurtful things. And so your parents were unlucky because they didn't have parents who could teach them the things that you were wanting. Right. So how can you pass on what you don't know and what you haven't exactly. experienced? And in so, the, so the challenge there really is to start to recognize that all of us, and no matter what family we've come from, there will be strengths and weaknesses within this family certain patterns that we're going to want to promote and continue and be really grateful that our children are carrying these forwards as well as patterns and habits that we would just as soon would hope our children wouldn't carry that forward. We become chain breakers yes. and let those old dysfunctional family patterns die exactly. in the past. Um, you were telling me, I asked you, do you think that bipolar uh, syndrome, manic depressive, that kind of anxiety disorders, do you think that those are generational, that those pass on into the DNA? The research is so strong about that, just like so many physical illnesses, whether you're talking about diabetes or heart disease or cancer or these kinds of things that we know have such a strong generational pattern to them. Um, we're still in many ways living in an age where mental illness is seen as some kind of horrible um, personal deficit or some mm -hmm. kind of craziness that 
and, and rather than looking at it, okay, there is a medical component of this. There are pieces and patterns that say, wait a minute, this is something that could be genetic. And, is, and I would think that um, that would be comforting to a client to understand that this is something that that has been in the family heritage, that it's not just about them, it's not that they're just, you know, something's the matter with me type of thing, but to understand that this has been something that's been passed on and then to learn how to deal with that. And that's a real challenge because not only do we get the genetics that can bring certain dispositions or certain concerns with our genetics, but we're also dealing with the behavioral patterns, the emotional patterns that we get taught. Um, and so much of it is our learning. Absolutely. I had a little boy come in, lay on the massage table beside his mother one day. It was her appointment, actually. And the little boy, believe it or not, was five years old. I'm going to try and mimic his voice. It was so cute. But anyway, I said, so what brings you here today? And he said, I got some troubles. <laughs> and I said, and what are those troubles? And he said, I saw my daddy lose his temper and have temper tantrums, and now I do it too. Uh-huh. And and I thought, so he saw that, he learned that, and he and he's laying on the table saying, I want to get over this. I'm five yeah. years old, and I don't want to. I don't want to keep passing this on. Well, and I think what he was really saying is he's seen that destructive force of a temper tantrum, and, he, <laughs> yeah. and especially from a father. And, and how he's scary. felt the scary feelings of yes. throwing one himself. And a tremendous energy, and and so learning how to manage that is so powerful. And so it's, it's just so exciting to start to recognize that the behavioral and emotional patterns that we have, whether they come through the, gen gen the generations or we've created them within ourselves, that you know, there's things that we can start to do about them that will just simply make our lives work better. Mm-hmm. I think it's wonderful. I'm really excited about learning more about what you do. You said that you have kind of come up with or invented a five-stage model. Do you feel comfortable with sharing what those five stages are? Absolutely. It's really a lot of fun. When, when you hear them, you'll go, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, I've talked to so many performers and I'm really putting Give anybody. Give your description of a performer yeah, for those. Anybody, who anybody can fit into the category of a performer, whether it's someone who is giving a corporate uh, presentation of earnings for the year, to a parent in dealing with a teenager, to talking to a neighbor uh, at work, anything in which we basically have a skill that we want to present. Okay, so, so that all, can be an ice skater or a singer or a songwriter. Absolutely. But it can also be a car salesman. Absolutely. You know, so you look at what it takes to bring our best to a particular situation. The five-stage model that I developed is very simple. It starts really with what is the foundation. It's called stage one, and it's really what's your goal and your intention? Your motivation behind this, why are you doing this? And what's the possibility on a being level that you're wanting to, to seek? How is it you want to be as you pursue this? I had a student at Brigham Young in the music department ask for some coaching when she said, you know, Dr. Skidmore, my senior recital's coming up. I'm hating this. I'm not progressing in my lessons. I'm really starting to worry about this. Can you help me? What's wrong? And the first thing I did is go right to stage one. So what's your goal and intention? And she said, do a senior recital. Okay. Why are you doing this? They're making me. How mm -hmm. are you being? How are you relating to your senior recital? I'm hating it. Well, this was the foundation of her entire performance. And you can see how negative that was. Well, it didn't take much coaching for her to realize her goal in life was not to do a senior recital. It was to become a great music teacher. And as she realized she wanted to become a great music teacher, part of that was to get a degree in music. 
So it broke it down for her. As part of getting a degree in music, she was choosing to do a senior recital. No one was making her do this. As this was we, still part of the choice. Part of the choice. As we processed what she was excited about, why she wanted to be a great teacher, she began to talk about the inspiration, the growth, the creativity she saw in her students, and her whole countenance changed. She just lit right up. And at that point, talking about how she was being, she was being excited. She was being creative and dynamic. And so those were like a trigger word concept where, okay, if she stepped out on stage in every dimension of this performance, if she was creative and dynamic and confident, what would show up? In that moment, her entire performance shifted for her. So that's the very foundation. and To enthusiasm rather than boredom and, and resentment and concern. Right. And, and most of us aren't often clear on what our motivations are. And we often feel like we don't have a choice about them. And so one of the things I like to talk a lot about, which we'll talk about in the workshop, is we can use reasons and use our reasons as the basis of a decision, or we can actually make a choice. We can give the power to the reason, I'm doing this because this is what I should do, or this is what's expected, versus Sounds this like what I Sounds like it's kind of taking, kind of giving people an opportunity to look at their shoulds, oh, and, and realize that their shoulds were really their choices. Yeah, if, if I could remove the word should from our vocabulary, I would, but it's so ingrained. And again, putting people back into a position of choice and empowerment is what it's really all about. If we go to stage two, we start talking about what kinds of skills you actually need to learn, to develop, to master. In a sense, it's practicing. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be singing a song in two weeks, do you know the words? Do you know the melodies? Do you have all the intonation and style and, and you know what to do with this? And so it's really about practicing, practicing, practicing. Well, what most people don't practice at this point is their attitude management. They don't necessarily practice how they're being with this, how they want to create something with this. And they often don't have the skills to manage things like anxiety. Oh, I uh, love this because you could, a man could come to you with his performance goal being a great husband, absolutely, or a great father, and yet he hasn't practiced maybe how to how to how to work through conflict with his wife. So now he's going to practice the skill of conflict resolution. Exactly. So he, and they could come in as a couple and say, "We want to perform as a great." as a great couple and a joyful couple and a happy couple and we want to practice the thing that keeps hanging us up. Yeah. We have fun when we go do this together. We have fun when we go do that together. But when we have an argument, we slide out of first base and go out, out of bounds. And that can be very destructive. And so they, they would definitely need to be able to practice how to deal with the conflict but keep their relationship intact. But not avoid the conflict. Exactly. To resolve and not it. avoid talking about those crucial conversations that we all need to have mm -hmm. from time to time. Absolutely. So you help them to, you help anybody in whatever they're they're seeking to master at in their performance to to do that skill well. Absolutely. I had a conversation with a young student at a high school and as we began to talk about her ability to manage her anxiety, I just framed it in the context of well right now you don't have that skill. You just haven't been taught that skill, but this is the skill that's missing right now. So you helped to pinpoint that for her. So so she doesn't feel like a dunce. She that's just right. says, hey, I did never learn it. That yeah. wasn't ever modeled for me. Exactly. And um, it's my favorite example in the music world that people have been kind of passing around as a, as a folklore kind of thing is somehow eating a banana before a performance is supposed to help. Um, and I've actually had workshops where I've gone to and presented and I've in preparation for recital, I've seen students eating bananas, you know, not by my <laughs> recommendation, but uh, 
you know, lots of things that are really fallacies get incorporated into this process of how to... I sing, and I don't think eating bananas before I sing would help. <laughs> well, you, you weren't ever told that. I heard that, that chewing a piece of um, aloe vera root helps and that the opera singers coat their throats with aloe vera. Well, that's a new one for me, but, you know, again, if somebody <laughs> says it and you believe it, it may have a positive yeah. impact. Uh, I just hate to be around if you couldn't get hold of an aloe vera root. Or if you started dying because you needed to drink a water to choke it down. There you go. Oh, So, so, so stage two basically says, mm -hmm. let's, let's get ourselves ready. Um, one of the things I like to focus on is we need to be able to say my performance preparation is complete. In a sense, how often when you sing would you say you're a thousand percent ready, you're a hundred percent ready and everything? Mm -hmm. In a sense, is your preparation complete? There's a big difference between going out there in a performance situation with the attitude of ready, not really going anyway, versus ready, yes, set, yes, go. And so stage two, you basically declare your preparation complete. You learn how to do your preparation because there comes a point in time when you can prepare no more. You might as well say you're ready and complete to do this. Stage three is actually getting yourself mentally set. So you have a mindset that says, yes, I can bring my best to this moment and I'm free to do so. Stage four is the actual performance. And one of the things I like about talking about stage four is I like to picture a sandbox and a child running into a sandbox free to play. And to express themselves, they have a sense of command about what's going on. If they're digging to China, they're not thinking at the same time, I'll never make it, this is really dumb. They're just digging to China. If they're on a, on a playground equipment piece and there they are going to the moon, they're going to the moon. And they're just out there enjoying that moment. And of course, when the mom screams, Johnny, it's time to go home, it's like this crashing thunderbolt, you know, changes the whole picture and now they've got to leave. So really, we want to be able to step freely into our sandbox, go out there and play, enjoy it, bring the best and of what we big. got. Absolutely. And when we leave that sandbox, it's so important to be able to say, okay, what worked about that? What didn't? What am I going to do next time? Too many people, too many performers do what I refer to as a post-performance bashing. And as, mm -hmm. as I've talked with performing artists, I've talked to people who literally for years after a performance and their post-performance bashing... Only critique themselves. They were so brutal, they didn't perform for years. I had a, a song singer-songwriter come to my massage table one time. I used her CD in the session. I thought mm -hmm. that would be so fun to, to have her integrate to the sound of her own voice, to feel that vibration coming through the uh -huh. headphones and the table and... And halfway through, she said, could you turn that off? I'm hearing all the mistakes That's I right. made. And she said, every time I listen to that CD, I just get a stomachache because I, did, I feel like there's just so many mistakes in it, yeah. and it wasn't even fun to make it. And I thought, that's sad, because I will tell you something. Um, as a singer-songwriter, I love it. And you know what? Sometimes my voice cracks, and sometimes I may not hit the notes mm -hmm. square on, but I love to sing. And when I am singing... It's like I go into some higher self, you know, and mm -hmm. I it it's just a blast to me. And therefore, I always feel men mentally ready to sing. Sometimes I forget my extension cord or my microphone because I haven't <laughs> prepared and gotten my music printed out or the words I've got, right. the, you know, missing the second sheet of, of, of words. But mentally, it's such a joy and it, there is nothing funner. But I did tell you about the time when I first started make cutting albums and just 
broke into cold perspiration just under the headphones and with the microphone in the recording studio, just feeling like, I can't do this, I can't do this. And when I crossed that hurdle, it became such a joy and so much fun that I just want everybody to be able to sing and to intonate and to use sound as part of their healing program. Well, you're really talking about a person being free to express themselves in whatever way they choose. And that's something I'm definitely committed to. Um, as a young musician myself growing up, I'm a singer as well, and no one taught me how to manage my own anxiety or concerns. Uh, there was just this huge expectation, just go out there and do this. You've practiced, 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 you've had your lessons, you've spent the hours in the practice room, now we have a performance, go out there and do it. And the tools and skills that I offer in that arena really do bridge that gap. It creates a bridge from the practice and the expectation to the actual performance. And it's just really fun. I had an opportunity a few weeks ago to be involved with an elite drum and bugle corps back on the East Coast. Mm. And these are kids that audition for this. These are like world-class level performers. They're amazing. And as I worked with these, I had a number of them come up and talk about how you know, talking about these tools made a difference because there they were, you know, out there in the line twirling their flags, you know, doing these the things that are part of the drum and bugle corps. And suddenly they're going, well, I'm not good enough to be here. I can't do this. And they're going to comparison because they're surrounded by everybody else. That's the, the, they had taught mm -hmm. them, and I, you know, they shifted out of that that's so great. and moved forward with it. It was just really a fun experience. That that would be. And you were mentioning to me that you've seen people put away their clarinet or their saxophone because they didn't have a, a good experience performing somewhere. Well, you know, it's such a tragedy. If each of us look at our own lives, we can find places where a door was shut, typically by ourselves, because we didn't do what we thought we should have done or what mm -hmm. we were expected to do. And we do that in relationships, too, not just in taking up a musical instrument. We close doors on relationships that could have been beautiful and had happy endings and or uh, happy continuations. Mm -hmm. And because we doubted our ability to perform as a wife or as I've, I've been married a few times, and I know that in my own struggle with depression, that um, it was hard for me to believe in myself sometimes. And I saw myself repeating, you know, enabling qualities or different tendencies that I had that made me feel like, Ugh, I just, I, I don't believe that I am a good wife. And so using all of this, this work that I've been involved with and being able to pinpoint that in other women, um, being able to assist people in, in relaxing and in creating a new perception for the brain using all five senses, teaching them how to cherish themselves, teaching them how to cherish their companions, how to cherish their children. And, mm -hmm. and my business is called The Cherishing Place. And right. my, my kids make jokes about, the, you know, the cherished lullaby, the cherished chair, the cherished mm -hmm. bed. But, um, but for me, I realized that God gave me that work to do because in the process of having men and women come onto my table and little children, I realized that I knew how to cherish, that it was intuitive, it was instinctive for me. And I've had people on the table that have said, I've never been tucked in before. As a little mm -hmm. girl, I never got lullaby to, I never right. got sung to, I, I never had an experience that involved so many senses. And, and to be able to give them that sense and call it cherishing and then give them that performance title. You are a nurturer. You are a cherisher. Mm -hmm. Now go back to your own husband and go back to your own teenagers and go back to your own children and be, be that cherishing model and performer for them. 
And I think that I love what you're doing. And I love um, taking it, you know, beyond the singer to the to the the divorcee mm -hmm. that's you know had a couple of divorces or the the single guy that doesn't think he can ever get married and because he doesn't see himself as a good husband because he didn't have that modeled for him, but now he wants to learn how to be an excellent husband and how to be an excellent father. No, you're really talking about how we each develop a sense of identity about who mm -hmm. we are. And so often our identity is started early in our lives, usually by the, time of, by the time we're five. And so by the time we're five, we've come up with certain attitudes or beliefs about who we are, whether we're good, whether we're bad, mm -hmm. uh, how to deal with stress and fear and how to get our needs met and these different concerns. And so often, if we are not aware of them, they continue to play out throughout our entire lives. And we develop patterns. We develop lots of patterns, lots of support for our beliefs. Right, and then we just kind of go on automatic pilot and just respond and react instead of thinking and, and doing it different, getting that needle out of the groove on the phonograph record. I had a great experience with a student who uh, shared a story at the age of 14 where she was singing a solo in church. She had a 14-year-old friend as her accompanist. Well, the accompanist broke down, messed up, did something drastic out there, which left the singer in front of the congregation really embarrassed, really alone. Well, at that moment, that experience was powerful enough for her, both physically and emotionally. She concluded that singing was just not for her. So this became a very powerful, life-changing moment. Well, it was amazing to meet her six years later in my class, and she was working on a degree in piano performance. Well, as I'm talking about the power of one experience, the power of certain experiences and how they shift our story or perception of things, um, she really got that she had made up the story or the perception or the meaning that somehow she was defective or bad because mm -hmm. of this. As she really understood that, um, things began to shift in her world, and it was just really exciting to see her come back to class two weeks later, she, first hand in the air as class started, and she just simply said, Dr. Skidmore, I want you to know I sang a solo in church on Sunday. And going back and picking up the rusty instrument. Absolutely. The first time in six years she'd sung in public. Well, I, I really relate with that story. Um, as a young girl, and this isn't to hurt my father's feelings, but a lot of times we get those perceptions from our parents. I remember sitting at the, the dinner table when I was 19, and I was being silly. I was singing at the table. I was a, just a happy, joyful 19-year-old. And my father leaned over and said, no man's going to want to marry you. How sad. And that... When he, you're too silly, you're too whatever, and whatever, and and that went in, so that cut deep because this was the only man in my life. Right. He was my dad, and yet that same father always told me I could sing. And when I would sing in church when I was 16 and 17, he was the one in the audience with tears streaming down his cheeks, and afterwards giving me the great big hugs mm -hmm. and and you know saying the prayer with me before the meeting that. You know, dear Lord, bless the ears of the audience to hear her pure intent and her pure voice. And so, on the one hand, I knew my father believed in me as a singer. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, I thought that he doubted me as a wife. And I can tell you how that's played out in my life. I have focused, I have written over how many umpteen songs? 500 songs have, you know, 20 CDs and a couple of husbands. Because I doubted 
my ability to be a good wife because of something that was said that got programmed in that I rehearsed. He only said it once. Right. I replayed it over and over again. It had a special meaning to you. I was at a um, Celtic band concert one time, and I remember the, the little band saying, this, is, this song's called The Butterfly, and if you feel like dancing, feel free. And, excuse me, because this touches me, but in a different way. So here I watched a little girl want to dance, and I was sitting next to his, her father. She comes over to him and says, Dad, can I dance? And he said, No, sit down and be good. Wow. Now, this little girl got the wrong message. Now, this father, I don't think, meant to do anything hurtful or harmful, and it's very, very rare that I've encountered parents that I would say who were intentionally, willfully wanting to hurt or harm their children. And... You know, it's the meaning we make out of situations like that. And learning how to free ourselves from some of those old meanings that constrain and bind and, and keep us hidden. Sometimes you don't even remember. And we don't even... You don't even remember what was said. And yeah. that that memory came up through a major prayer, mm-hmm. asking what is the issue at the bottom of this? What's mm-hmm. my core belief? Yeah. And then it was returned to my mind. And, you know, I don't hold my dad accountable for that. He was just off the cuff saying something to his 19-year-old. But how often do our children take it personally because they don't have the, the skills to not, and they believe in the authority parent, the authority figure? Well, and I think that's why it's so important as, um, as a psychologist. One of my greatest frustrations in my field is that people have to be in a tremendous amount of pain before they're going to knock on my door to see me as a psychologist. And there's so much of that that can be avoided. There's so much to do on a preventative teaching educational level. We're so, in general, poorly trained for life. And You know, we don't take the parenting classes in high school. Mm-hmm. And at BYU, you know, we'll take them at BYU. But we don't take, we don't take, I think everybody should be required to take a couple of years of conflict resolution. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? And then nice. when you get in these workshops, you get in these relationships with employers and in husbands, wives, then we already have the skills. We've already practiced. We've already, we've already learned how to do it. And um, I want to hear number five. We didn't get to number five. The post-performance debriefing. What was that? The post-performance debriefing. Oh, number five was, so stop being critical with yourself. Well, and each time a person performs, and it really doesn't matter what it is, at that moment, if they could have done a better job, they would have. But they couldn't have, or they didn't do a better job at that For moment. For whatever the reason. For whatever reasons. And so, in a sense, each performance is the best performance. We knew well how to as, do in the moment. As well as each performance is also a practice in performing. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting as I look with young students, for example, going into piano recitals, they get a mindset that somehow this recital is so big and so important, and this is something really special, and they've got to do it. No, it's just another practice in performing. And as you begin to practice performing, I, I really believe that's why there's a 24-hour day, so we can wake up in the morning and do it over again. Mm-hmm. And so we get to practice our day again. That's right. We get a break in between. That's right. And, and number five could also be have fun. Have fun performing in whatever it is you've chosen to do your performance in. In, in any field, when you really look at people who are doing their best, having what's considered a peak performance, there's something interesting about that. One, they often talk about it as something that's enjoyable, exciting, a lot of fun. And two, the characteristics of a peak performance truly match the characteristics of a child at play in a sandbox. Mm 
Mm, I love that. And so when you start to recognize this, what we're really doing is setting up an environment and creating a place where people are really free to bring their best because that's what they want to do anyway. They want it's like the difference between exercise and recreation. You know, it's like, you know, if I think I'm going to go exercise, that that like that sounds like hot and tiring. Mm-hmm. But if I think I'm going to recreate through, you know, this brisk walk through uh-huh. the canyon, then that sounds more fun to me. Well, and that can, and it can be a lot more fun. And I think, again, when you look at people in terms of their passions, what their interests are, what really lights them up, those are things we can have a tremendous amount of fun doing, even though it could be very hard work, very challenging. But the mindset is we're out there to enjoy it and that to it have is a lot fun. of fun. It is enjoyable. It is recreational. And it is it is for pure enjoyment, whether, whether it blessed a million people. I've heard it said that God gave us our talents first for ourselves. He gave you the gift of, of singing to bless you first. Because and he wanted you to enjoy that gift and and he gave me a gift for me to enjoy and for me to love and okay. then to share it after that after we have received the gift from him we go and we polish it and we perfect that gift so that other people can enjoy it too and receive the benefits of that gift absolutely so I am very thrilled to have you we're going to be doing some really fun things. I would like to, you said that you started receiving the body work because you were stressed and depleted from graduate school. What kind of body work have you had? Do you still engage in that? And um, I've, well, I, I couldn't count the number of different body therapists I've worked with. Um, what kinds have you received? Everything from the, um, like the acupuncture kinds of things mm-hmm. to more of the Swedish massage, the sports massage to more of a real light touch, energetic type massage. Um, it just really, um, some a lot of emotional release kinds of massage. Um, probably some of the most emotional releasing moments of my life have been on a massage therapy table. And um, do you, are you able to integrate in your own personal life what you've learned in the clinical psychology department with, you know, like when you're, when you're processing the things in your life that you want to process, do you do that? You know, I can to an extent because there's always things that I can see about what I know within myself, but there's also a domain of what I don't know and I'm mm-hmm. not clear with. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's helpful to have that objective pers- It's that necessary. Ob- we all need it. Whether yeah. we're a clinical psychologist, we all need objectivity. If anything, it's all my degree and training has done has made me much more aware of when I'm not in line with what I'm committed to doing and being and... And sometimes that's created a lot of frustration. It's like, okay, I can see where this pattern, this belief, this uh, series of emotions, it's not serving me well. It doesn't create what I want in my life. It's still here. What's going on? And so it usually um, takes the help and support of somebody outside of, well, for myself, it's been my experience. I can't do my own healing. I need to be working with somebody in that interactive mode, whether it's a massage therapist or a different therapist. And then I've been able to start to see and use the tools and skills that I've got. Well, I, I believe that. And I had kind of an awakening of that this last week. I, I was out uh, dancing barefoot on my deck and got a splinter in my heel. And while I was able to get half of it out, the mm-hmm. part that was showing, that was really easy. The part that was kind of wedged in there, I, <laughs> I couldn't get it out. Painful. And I thought, you know, it'll work itself out. And so I just left it alone. I went on the chi machine and put on the headphones and did some peppermint oil and and just forgot about it. When I woke up 
two hours later, the thing was swollen. Mm -hmm. My foot was in pain. I couldn't put any pressure on it. And I thought, you know, I wonder what this in, the significance of this little moment, this little life's teaching moment is. And then the thought came, sometimes you can't get the rest of the splinter out by yourself. You can, you can deal with what you can, with what you've seen, with mm -hmm. what you remember, with what you know. Right. But then you need sometimes a professional or someone who, I could not bend my foot that direction mm -hmm. to even see that splinter. So my daughter and my dear friend Linda proceeded to do, you know, open foot surgery mm -hmm. on me. And I realized that, that that's so much the same with the issues of the heart. Sometimes we carry these, the, the other half of the splinter around in our mm -hmm. heart. We don't know why we're irritable or why we, why we get triggered up and why we say some things we wish we never would have said. And it's because the other half of the splinter is still lodged in that heart where there are no bandages, there are no medications, there are no drugs right. that can possibly release that. And I, I appreciate the work that you do and the respect that you have. I think that there's a lot of people who, um, who don't see the correlation between the two fields. Um, as people are laying on the table and then having studied aromatherapy and knowing that as those aromas go up into the into the olfactory bulb that it's going up into the amygdala, it's releasing little bits of, of um, constricted energies that are lodging in those two almond-shaped places called the amygdala that you probably know all about that are holding on like little computer chips of energies that have been repressed since childhood and that New York University did a study and found that aromatherapy is one of the smallest diffusible molecules that can actually get in and start doing this cleansing work. And a lot of times when people are out laying on the table, they'll have tears start trickling down their cheek. Mm -hmm. They don't remember why. I've been there. You know, where they just have those tears released. I think that combining combining all these fields is so fun. I'm... It is fun to me. It's like my sandbox and and um, making healing not a, a scary thing, but so that people won't, uh, you said that people wait too long to call mm -hmm. you. Um, I agree that it needs to be, we need to think of the emotional medicine as a preventative thing that before the divorce, long before that, when we start noticing that we're having conflict resolution issues we may be two wonderful people it's like you've known couples that have gotten divorced and you thought he's a great guy and she's a great woman and and that's too bad that they got divorced and i think typically it is conflict resolution styles and if they could learn through through doctors like you and get the help that they need and then go get that relaxation to release the stresses that have accumulated in the heart mind body spirit how wonderful to work together on on that. That's very exciting, and it's great to be able to start to recognize that I mean, there's a lot of people out there that aren't wanting to wait until they really are in a huge, huge crisis. Typically, right now, if a couple comes right now, if a couple comes to see me, one of my first questions asked is, "Have you already talked to an attorney? Have either one of you talked to an attorney?" Mm -hmm. And more often than not, I get a response that, "Well, uh, okay, well, this is like the last thing we're going to try before we mm -hmm. get divorced." And, you know, that's just really sad because it really, if you can look at our relationship, specifically marriage as a growing up machine, that we're in this partnership here to help ourselves grow up as well as our partners and create a place that they can do that and we can do that. 
um, you know, it's a very different kind of experience. But it, again, it takes a lot of growing up. And I think that's really, in a sense, you and I are both in the business of helping people grow up and mature out up, of, huh? yes, mature up mature of the things up. where they've been stuck. Uh, I loved it when one guy, get it, a five-year-old's been in charge of my checkbook. <laughs> and and right. they started to just realize how those beliefs and attitudes of so long ago that were so old, important at one point in time, the best that could be concluded at that moment, really were outdated and really needed to mature up. And isn't it exciting that we as spiritual, emotional, physical beings can change our minds and that we can learn new tricks. We're not old dogs. We can learn new tricks. We can uh, learn the new skills and and then become better performers in our roles as as father, mother, husband, wife, um, employee, employer. And I think that's exciting that that's what healing and repentance and the atonement is all about and, and bringing Christ into it and knowing that through him that those old lodgings of depressed emotions and those old tendencies to cycle things through certain patterns that those can be broken and healed i think that's so exciting to know that and that we have that we have that gift and understanding that we have a savior who who loves us and who wants us to be made whole and who sent us down a couple generations after the incident occurred and and we get to be that chain breaker. We get to believe in ourselves. And I'm looking forward to doing this workshop with you. We'll be again September 21st and 22nd. Dr. John Skidmore, who I'm interviewing here today. This is Karen Grant with Joy Vibrations. We will be conducting a two-day workshop, six hours per day with a healthy alkaline lunch in between those first two and a half hours and the last two and a half hours that workshop will be called healing the heart through mind body work combining positive psychology with dr don john skidmore who is a clinical psychology clinical psychologist excuse me with music massage and aromatherapy using the five senses in accessing what the heart knows, what the mind remembers deep down inside that subconscious mind, bringing it all forward and teaching us how to perform better in our callings and our roles, in our lifetimes, and having more joy. The end result is joy. Having fun, number five, you know, doing the, the, doing it all, doing the performances for joy and for happiness, not being so critical. You know, it's just a lot more fun when we're able to step out there and just enjoy what we're doing and recognizing that the suffering that we create, the pain and the agony, really is our own creation. It's so much self-condemnation, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And, you know, being able to recognize, one of the things I'll be focusing a lot on the workshop is there are times when we can really bring our best and we know we're bring, being our best at this moment. And then we have that other side of us. And we know what our world and life is like when we're in that other space. And how to keep getting ourselves back out of that space faster, more often, uh, staying in the space where we want to be longer through more different types of circumstances and situations, and really just learning to have a lot more fun and freedom in our lives. I love it. And I also love that part of this whole process, using the senses and in in. Um, creating new realities for the brain and the heart and the mind to focus on. Um, 
includes the, the, the senses, but in those senses, the sense of taste, the sense of touch, the sense of smell, hearing and sight, I'd like to add the sense of movement, getting yes. ourselves out of catharsis and out of uh, recoil and out of fetal position and getting out there and dancing for joy, barefoot on the deck, even if you get a splinter, and um, also a sense of humor. And I think that, that part of the biggest healer in overcoming the past and I can laugh at myself, you know, I've been married five times. I remember uh, when I came home from a, a quick marriage that lasted 10 days, my, my, my son, Stephen, uh, threw himself in a heap on the bed. And I said, Stephen, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. And this marriage is, we're getting it annulled and it only lasted for 10 days. And he threw himself in a heap, threw himself in a heap on the bed, just flung himself backwards and said, how to lose a guy in 10 days. <laughs> and you know, him having that sense of humor helped me in that moment. And I was able to laugh at myself and not that I take marriage lightly. I really don't. I have such a testimony of it. But when we do make mistakes for what we've got to relearn, to see ourselves in a positive light and stay lighthearted and and move on and keep keep on trying with whatever we've experienced in any way um, again it'll either become a roadblock or a stepping stone and learning how to put the emotional the physical the spiritual the energetic garbage in a place where it can be processed and put whatever that is in a place in our history that it can promote our best performing, our future performing, those future possibilities is really a challenge. And as we learn to be able to do that, it's like, okay, there's a whole new sense of freedom in stepping forward, in being able to create new possibilities in our lives. And know that you can go out there and be the best. You know, J.C. Penney's, he failed at business 66 times before he came up with J.C. Penney's department mm -hmm. store. That we can keep, we can keep trying and keep uh, gleaning from all of our, the wisdom from all of our choices. I'm very excited to have you here, Dr. John Skidmore, and so grateful for Trudy Barnes from the Tabernacle Choir who set us up so that we could meet each other, and thank you, Trudy, and we are so grateful for all those out there who are listening who want to heal the dysfunctions in a fun way, put the fun and dysfunctional and, there we go. and make it fun and happy to do our healing work and to um, identify those things where we are slipping in our performance and then heal those things, release the stress through sweet mediums, regain our serenity and find tranquility in life. Man is that he might have joy and we can do that through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And I'm very grateful to have you here. Is there anything that you would... Oh, we need to give some phone numbers and some websites so that if people would like to come and sign up for this workshop... Well, let's just start with my phone number. It'll be 801-426-2685. That's my office phone number. Okay. And I can be emailed at john, J-O-N, Skidmore, S-K-I-D-M-O-R-E, one, number one, at mstar, M-S-T-A-R, two. So that's John Skidmore one at mstar2.net. You're going to repeat that one more time for those people that were running for a pencil. J-O-N-S-K-I-D-M-O-R-E, the numeral one, at mstar2.net. That's great. And this is Karen Grant with Joy Vibrations. My website is www www that's three w's www dot cherishing dot cherishing place and my email address is karen k-a-r-y-n-n-y-n-n -N -N, grant g-l-a-n-t all one word at gmail.com hoping to hear from you we'd love to have 
25 anxious receivers come to our workshop September 21st and 22nd. That's Healing the Heart through Mind Body Works, combining positive psychology with music, massage, and aromatherapy. Thank you for your time, and we hope that you are increasing the vibration of joy in your life today. Thank you very much. I appreciate being here.
curtain opens I dance with him upon life's stage I hear angels applauding As we dip and dance with grace His warm voice serenades me Past loves, past lives behind 